completely unbalanced. Come on now, Brian. That's pretty awful. Oh my god. <laughs> He's unbalanced. This guy is a lunatic. These men lived in a much different time. God, we got some kooky people back in this time. It's not obvious that we are professionals. You are not paying attention. We know what we're doing. <laughs> but I'm serious. Can we start already? And then, welcome back to Unbalanced Views of History. This is part two of our Christmas extravaganza special. Uh, we are have covered all the ancient world, sort of, kind of, and we're going to move to the, the, the big enchilada, uh, the St. Nicholas to Santa Claus pipeline. We're going to talk about Santa Claus. And we're going to just jump right into it. Mike, have anything to uh, anything to add so far? No, I'm, I'm excited to meet Klaus for the first time here in the story and um, figure out where he started to recruit all his little midgets to put them to work in the slave farm he has up there in the North Pole. Yeah, uh, well, we're we're. I'm going to hint at where that uh, where some of these ideas come from, although I'm not going to specifically specifically talk about his uh, about his uh, indoctrination camps, the slave um, labor. Yeah, the slave labor. I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> OK. All right. So, I mean, th- no surprise here. Famously, uh, Santa Claus is uh, rooted in stories about uh, a dude that a real dude named St. Nicholas. I've got a nice picture of him there for you. Um. St. Nicholas, uh, what we actually know about St. Nicholas is pretty limited. Uh, we know he was the Bishop of Myra in modern Turkey, which was called Asia Minor at the time. He lived uh, roughly, uh, the, they speculate his birthday around March 15th, the year 270, and that okay. he died around December 6th, 343. Again, Ooh, okay. maybe it's entirely possible he died before 337, but that's based on some recently unearthed archaeological evidence that suggests that his church was not where uh, everybody thought it was because they gotcha. unearthed the church that actually seems to make more sense. And um, and because of the archaeological evidence, it suggests maybe he died sometime before 337. It doesn't matter. He died somewhere in the early, in like the first half of the fourth century. Long time ago. That's really all we know about him. Uh, we know okay. some le- we know some legends. Uh, one of the most famous legends is that uh, he that there were three virgins who uh, could not afford uh, a dowry and were going to be forced into prostitution. So he, uh, he as a rich dude, he slipped some coins uh, in through their window at night, uh, three consecutive nights. He slipped a little pouch of coins in for each of the three girls so that they could uh, afford a dowry and get married and avoid prostitution. Um but that story is kind of interesting because uh, there's also a story about him saving three boys who had been pickled, uh, killed and pickled <laughs> by, uh, by, I don't know, pickled. put in a pickle, pickle barrel and pickled, and he <laughs> managed to bring them back to life. Uh, there's another story nice. about him saving three sailors uh, by, uh, I don't know, doing something that saved them from, from crashing uh, against the rocks near Myra. There's a, a symbol of a symbolic uh, thing about three with him. And uh, I find it interesting that uh, the story of the three virgins who uh, are going to be sold into prostitution sounds real similar to the three mother goddesses that were celebrated, um, you know, in the mother goddess ceremonies. But I'm just saying, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's an interesting trio thing. Um, gotcha. The, sim- the symbolic, symbolic importance of three is kind of is obviously there. <laughs> but we don't know any of that. We have no evidence of any of those things. There are stories that he was at the Council of Nicaea. 
uh, determining the books of the Bible and that he actually got in a fist fight there. None of that seems to be borne out by the evidence, but whatever. Yeah. Anyway, um, the, the earliest stories that don't seem completely fictionalized um, are, are kind of of a rich bishop who maybe left small gifts outside the homes of people who like were poor. Like that's yeah. He didn't traverse the entire earth in one night. No, he did not. Uh, it does seem like, it does seem like he had a reputation, uh, for maybe be like, for being like a nice man who maybe gave gifts to some poor people, like in the middle of the night would like leave some small gifts outside their homes. Um, that, that seems again, there's not really direct evidence, but the fact that his, uh, cult starts so early and, and these stories sort of emerge so early suggests that maybe there's some truth to it. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Bottom line is he seems like he was a well-loved and probably a generous guy. And, and so regardless of anything else, he was well-loved and generous. And then so stories about his generosity, you know, follow his death, Yep. which again is not surprising. We kind of do the same thing today when, uh, when some famous dude dies, we, we tend to lionize uh, that what they did. Um, whether, you know, Im- we tend to embellish what they did, um, sure. imbue it with uh, significance that maybe it, it doesn't deserve or, or sure. you know, what, maybe it does. I mean, who knows? Anyway, yep. um, the St. Nicholas church was built in 520, about 200 years after he died in Myra on the grounds of the church. He allegedly served it. And I got a picture there of the fresco, uh, and the exterior of that church. And of course, St. Nicholas's feast day. Uh, was December 6th. The church, the Catholic church has officially uh, uh, demoted him from having an official feast day uh, as there's, there's not enough information. Like they, they haven't made him no longer a saint or anything as they have done with some other people recently. Uh, They, but they have like kind of downplayed his significance uh, since, since the 1960s. Now what's interesting for our purposes is going to be the story of St. Nicholas's bones. Um, when the church of St. Nicholas was built, his bones were dug up and they were reburied there at the church as, you know, relics, like a relics of a saint. Right. They, uh, now again, the idea of, uh, sainthood is not formalized, uh, till much, much, much later. It kind of, it's a pretty informal process. Lots of churches called like said they had saints and stuff like that. It was years and years later till they started to actually like formalize this stuff centrally but you know so there were you know not unlike the romans having these like regional cults the the church kind of did the same thing had all these regional cults uh built around people that they claimed were saints anyway the bones allegedly remained at this church from 520 uh until 1087 so I mean, it's a long time sure. and uh and it wasn't until sort of 1087 when myra was taken by uh seljuk turks in the battle of Manzikert or after the battle of Manzikert. So it wasn't until, you know, the Turks, uh, like conquered the area. Italian sailors visited Myra in 1087 and they stole the main bones, uh, of St. Nicholas. Now they did so bones. They stole them bones. (laughs) They stole the relics and they stole them over the objection of the monks that were there. Um, like at sword point, <laughs> and they moved those, and, and in fact, we object. Not really, and in, though. And in fact, um, it was pretty funny because, like, uh, they had a like a, a a bishop with them who was like, "Don't listen to those fools. Take those bones." Um, 
And it was, in fact, Pope Urban II himself who placed St. Nicholas's bones under the altar of a newly erected Basilica di San Nicola two years later in Bari, Italy. So the Pope was like, I don't care if they're stolen. It's cool. Um, now, <laughs> they look good. They, uh, they managed to get around this blatant theft uh, from the Greek Christians because, again, they stole them from Christians <laughs> so that they could put them in their own church. But the way they got around this was that the uh, the people of Bari claimed that Nicholas one time had visited Bari and made a prophecy that his bones would one day reside there. So that was good enough for Pope Urban II. He's like, yeah, 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 I, I've heard this. I knew this. So they're like, no, no, no. He prophesied this. So we're just fulfilling his prophecy, which is pretty funny. Prior to the relocation in Bari, St. Nicholas's cult was not all that well-known in Western Europe. There were a few people that's, that, that, like, uh, that kind of belonged to the St. Nicholas cult, but it wasn't like widespread. But mm. because of Frankish and Norman crusaders who ended up stationed at Bari during the First Crusade, they kind of end up introduced to the St. Nicholas cult, and they took it back home with them uh, into sort of Normandy and into the, the sort of Frankish kingdoms. So they took St. Nicholas's, uh, this idea of him with them back up into Western Europe because just by the coincidence of being stationed in Bari. Right. So, so this is wild. Now Venice also wanted them bones. Um, so in 1100 Venetian soldiers who were on their way to Palestine for the first crusade were ordered by Bishop Henri to turn back and go to Myra. And they gathered the remaining fragments of bones. Now the main bones went to Bari, but they left like, uh, they left sort of like arms and legs, you know, like toes, yeah, yeah, smaller stuff. They just took the main bulk, the head, you know? Yep. Uh, and so the remaining fragments, uh, which were only guarded by four monks. So the soldiers again, under the command of their Bishop were able to easily defeat the four monks who were guarding them and steal <laughs> the relics and take these minor relics back to Venice. They weren't Kung Fu monks. That's for that sure. Is, they were not Shaolin. No. So this, actually, this thing about St. Nicholas's Bones remains an issue even in, uh, today, as Turkey repeatedly calls this a desecration, which, of course, it was, and demands the return of the stolen bones, which, of course, they are denied. In October of this year, though, Turkish archaeologists claim to have discovered the exact location where his bones actually had been buried. Oh. And... Uh, like they, they've discovered what they claim is the original floor and the original tomb underneath the floor. And, uh, anyway, they, uh, a few years ago, archaeologists, like I said, began to speculate that he might actually have preached at a different church. Uh, but nonetheless, the bones are really important to the idea of Santa Claus. And that's why we're talking about, uh, this old, like dead guy's bones. Yep. As the, the cult of St. Nicholas grew, so too to visit a desire for different areas to have some kind of relic of the saint, right? As the cult grows, having a relic means you could put up a, a temple or a basilica or a chapel or a church. Sure. And you could attract pilgrims, which means you could attract money. Oh. So the clergy at Bari were really careful. They gave away the fragments very strategically uh, in order to promote the cult, but they were very, really careful to maintain the primary bones at Bari where they remain. Um, so they would give these usually to like different um, uh, knights, princes, you know, important people to take yep. back 
in order to again promote the call uh, and always giving it to people who might have who would have the the money or connections to build a church that then could kind of again grow the cult because again Bari knows we've got the good bones so even if they build a, a chapel or a church or whatever else people will still want to pilgrimage here to see you know to where the, the skull is yep yep um they also at Bari they buried it in a in these uh in this underground tomb that um gets seepage from the seawater uh nearby mm-hmm. that seeps through the capillaries of the rocks and goes through the bones and so the bones appear to be uh like sweating what they call myrrh Okay. Uh, so like, uh, there's a, a fluid discharge from where the bones are buried that again is salt water from the, from the Mediterranean that seeps through the stones and mm-hmm. comes out where the stones, you know, stop being on the other right. side of the bones. But as a result, they've been able to claim this sort of miracle of, uh, you know, of the bones seeping myrrh for, you know, a thousand years anyway. Uh, but we like understand the scientific process by which it happens and like whatever, but that anyway, so they, uh, but the best story about them giving away bones, and this is my favorite was a French clerk, uh, who probably was more Frankish than France, French, but whatever. Um, he claimed that St. Nicholas appeared to him, telling him to Hmm. take a bone to his hometown in port in Northeast Francia. So, you know, he just like dug up and took a finger bone. Because St. Nicholas told him to. Nice. And you can see the image of the Basilica of St. Nicholas de Port, where that, where that finger bone uh, resides as a relic. Uh, it's a pretty substantial Basilica. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, um, yeah. Built, uh, that's nice looking actually. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's really nice. That's yep. St. Nicholas church feast day. That that's is beautiful. Basilica de Saint, Basilica Saint Nicholas de Port. Yep, that is beautiful. That is the home of them bones, right there. That's it's the home of a finger <laughs> <laughs> of that bone, home of that bone. But, but I mean, it's it is it continues to be very weird to me that like Catholics venerate like the bone of some dude. Um, it's very weird. I mean, it yeah. it har- it harkens back to much more ancient practices. You know what I mean, like ancestor worship stuff, like that. It's no, there's nothing in the Bible, that's for sure. Right. Like, there's right. absolutely right. nothing biblical. This is like this is ancient human beings contemplating the, you know, the the great existential crisis of of you know of death. <laughs> um, that's all that that is. Anyway, so the bones, uh, Saint Nicholas's bones, small ones, mind you. The main ones always remain in Bari. But little tiny bones, little fragments, a tooth here, a toe, you know, like a, a toe bone there, uh, end up all over Europe, from Italy to Russia to Finland, even Ireland. There's even a bone in the United States. I can't remember where, though. I forgot to, uh, to leave a note. So they end up all over the place so that people can build St. Nicholas churches. Um, and the cult of St. Nicholas uh, kind of ends up, like everywhere else, in Spain, along with some of them bones. And the Spanish yep. Saint, cult of St. Nicholas is really important to our story. That's why, that's why I've gone down this path. So you've heard of the, have you ever heard of the Spanish Reconquista? Uh, no. So when Isabella uh, of Castile and her cousin, husband, Ferdinand II of Aragon, okay. took their respective thrones of Castile and Aragon, uh, they 
basically unified Spain for the first time in history. Like up until then, Spain had been, you know, a bunch of sort of smaller, uh, smaller kingdoms, but they unified the kind of Iberian Peninsula of Spain, part of Spain, uh, under, you know, with their, with their marriage, right. Joining, joining Aragon and Castile. Now their wedding had been approved by uh, Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia through a special dispensation that he allegedly received for them from Pope Pius II, because they were consanguineous cousins, meaning they were their bloodline was too close for them to legally get married. Correct. Because they were second cousins, um, well, which is... That doesn't stop a lot of other people. Uh, well, it was, was it illegal. Lee Lewis? It was illegal to the church, even in the 15th century. But you could get special dispensation, and Rodrigo Borgia managed to get this for him, for them, from Pope Pius II. What's interesting was that Pope Pius II actually died five years earlier than he allegedly gave out this dispensation. So that's kind of neat. Oh, he was still signing stuff. Borgia's an interesting dude. Um, there have been several like TV series made about the Borgias. Yes, the Borgias, yes. Yeah, there's two. I think there's one called Borgia and one called The Borgias. Yes. So um, I haven't seen them. But... They, they're, they're very good. Anyway, in 1492... Ferdinand and Isabella, uh, who we most famously know for in 1492, authorizing your boy, uh, the monster, uh, history's greatest monster, Christopher Columbus, to sail uh, sail west. Uh, what they did, what the thing that they did that they thought was more significant than that, was they ended the more than 700 year Islamic rule on the Spanish Peninsula, the Iberian Peninsula, and they pushed out the last of the Moors at. Um, at El Andalusia, and they were declared the quote Catholic monarchs, which was like a title, uh, meaning that they were Catholic, universal, universal monarchs. By take a wild guess, mm-hmm. Pope Alexander the Sixth, also oh. known as Rodrigo Borgia, now the Pope. Borgia. So the guy that had uh, had sort of lied to let them get married now declared them the Catholic monarchs giving them sweeping power in Europe. When they defeated the Moors, uh, most of the writing describes these people as what were called Blackie Moors because they're they're North African. They have darker skin, and this will be relevant in a bit. Now, the reason all of this matters is that by consolidating their power in the Iberian Peninsula, the Spanish monarchs, who now also will start developing colonies in the New World, and will have a tremendous influx of silver and gold, especially silver, mm-hmm. are doing what most empires think about doing, expanding. <laughs> so they embark on a project to expand and promote Catholicism as they understood it. And so they launched the Spanish Inquisition, and they encouraged pilgrimages um, to Spain and elsewhere in Europe, mainly by setting rules and punishing bandits within their territory. Now, after they retook Grenada, which was the last sort of areas where Al-Andalusia was, uh, in 1492, Spanish monarchs and emperors increased the Spanish, and of course the Spanish crown, Isabel and Ferdinand, the crown passes on to the Habsburg family. And I'm sure you've heard of the Habsburgs. um, Because they're... The Habsburgs and the McCoys. Well, the Habsburgs, I mean, basically World War I is a fight between Habsburgs, by and large. Like the Habsburgs basically bring World War, like bring Europe to war uh, eventually. Because they, but anyway, we're going to talk about the Habsburgs very briefly. 
But anyway, they, they increased Spanish and Habsburg holdings in Europe, including an area called the Low Country or the Netherlands. And this begins with the very first Habsburg, uh, and you, I hope, have the, the slide there, Philip the Handsome. Yes, he is a he's a looker too. Philip the Handsome, Philip Habs, one of the Habsburgs. Now, I don't know about you, but I find Philip the Handsome to be, I don't know, strangely named. Um, I don't want to knock the <laughs> I don't want to knock the uh, the 16th century guy's looks. Not the most handsome guy I've ever seen. But if you go to the next slide, you'll see some other Habsburgs. So you get some sense of what we're comparing him to. Let's see. Oh my. <laughs> Is this legit or is this is this is oof. In, indeed you have a gentleman. First of all, the, is... the two on the left, I think I've seen the one as the world's like uh, something in the Guinness Book of World Records or something. No, that's that's a the Guinness Book of World Records is a silly thing that you can buy your way into. But no, uh, no, they are Habsburg royal family Habsburgs. Uh, that is a father and a daughter that you see there on the left with the. Uh, with a condition where they are covered in hair. Uh, now the father has a perfectly normal, like unhair covered wife. The um, condition was they didn't have razors back then. Uh, but yeah, this I actually feel really bad for him, um, uh, Gonzalez, Philip uh, Philip Gonzalez, uh, or Pietro Gonzalez. He, uh, I feel very bad for him, but he Habsburg. I mean, it, um, because he was uh, he was basically kept around now. Lived in a, in a castle, lived a wonderful life with all the with all the money, and all the power, and all the prestige, and all the things that go with being like a you know being part of the royal family. But they the family basically trotted him out like a family pet to come out to be a spectacle. <laughs> no shit. Uh, throughout all of Europe, like they would send him around just like to go be seen and laughed at. Um, but then, like you know, they found him a wife, and then he had a daughter, and she. Turned out to have the same condition as him. His other children did not. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. But you see, those Habsburg—they have that Habsburg chin. And here's a wild thing. Actually, they're actually the family continues today. There is, in fact, like this weirdo Habsburg who uh, I can't think of his name, who I see on Twitter periodically, who like <laughs> is like a weirdo tradcath who like comes out and he'll do these things like, well, the 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 reason you know the the reason the economy's bad is because uh you you've decided to allow abortion in your country and he'll do like and that's why we should reinstate the monarchy and like once again return to guy like he's a crazy weirdo who, I got a, a, a monarchist like a tradcath monarchist yeah uh, but he is in fact still a Habsburg uh with like the most inbred family line that has ever been. And no all shit. royal families are inbred as all get out, but the Habsburgs are maybe the worst. The, the I mean, like that Habsburg chin is like, oof, bad. That's okay. I think that's like a Jay Leno chin right there. Oof. I mean, it's yeah, even it's so much worse. Anyway, uh, so from the this conquest of the Netherlands, what we have is an area called the Spanish Netherlands, which brings us to. The Dutch. Because of geography, the Spanish Navy and Spanish shipping generally was critical to their ability to control the Low Country. And as happens whenever people engage in commercial, cultural, and social intercourse, the stories and customs from one area get shared with another culture. They get shared back and forth. And this is what happened between the Spanish 
and the Nederlanders. And so the cult of St. Nicholas comes to the southern low country by way of Spain through sailors and like the merchant marine. The same, nice. the name San Nicola becomes incorporated into Dutch as Sinterklaas. San Nicholas, Sinterklaas. 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 So, you see on the next page here, we have the Spanish boat, right? Spanja? The Spanja. Oh, I like it. Yes, this is Sinterklaas arriving in Holland. Oh, look at that guy. All the kids are probably loving it. Oh, this is a, a very recent picture. He's surrounded there by his helpers who are called Zwarte Piet or Zwarte Pietin. Slave labor for German for slave labor. Now, Zwarte Pietin means Black Peter. And you'll see their faces are covered in soot. And that is because they uh, use chimneys to go down and spy on children oh. to see if they're being, being bad or good. But if you go to I the next it. slide, if you go to the next slide, this is this is new like this year. You see, Zwarte okay. Piet, up until uh, the last year or two, wasn't created uh, with soot. He was full-blown blackface. Well, <laughs> yeah. Big, comical red lip. This, this, they changed this in uh, 2020, 2021. Uh-huh. I think 2020 was the last year. Uh, and it's a real controversial thing there among the Dutch, changing Zwarte Piet. He's dressed in... Uh, Bright, I see nothing wrong with that. 16th century uh, Moorish clothing. They have to wear uh, what good. they they sell, what they call nappy wigs, so you can dress like Zwarte <laughs> Piet. And uh, you have to have these exaggerated huge red lips when you do Zwarte Piet that you put on with red lipstick. It's bad, Mike. <laughs> it's bad. I like it. Yeah, I know you will. I know you would. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, I think it, it looks cool. Zwarte Piet. Was uh, first uh, came as uh, as uh, Sinterklaas's uh, slave, but then uh, when slavery became outlawed, he became his servant, and now he's just his companion. Um, and Zwarte Piet goes out to see he Zwarte he goes Piet. out he goes out like Woden's Black Ravens to go into the chimneys to listen to see who are the good and who are the bad little boys and girls. Now, Sinterklaas arrives from Spain sometime in mid-November, and that kicks off the Christmas season for the Dutch. And on the evening of December 5th, which is St. Nicholas's Eve, uh, Sinterklaas gives gifts to the child, to the good children and punishes the bad children. Uh, the bad children get cold or whatever. They don't get punished. Sorry, they get cold. Right, right. Uh, but Zwarte Piet and Sinterklaas. Now, December 6th, of course, because that's St. Nicholas's Day, and that, so that becomes the day of gift-giving. St. Mm-hmm. Nicholas Day. Right. Now, in 1614, New Netherlands was founded uh, by Dutch colonists, and they founded, of course, New Amsterdam in 1624. And when they did, they brought their customs with them. So even after the English took over and renamed the place about 50 years later or so, uh, more than three or at least three generations of Dutch residents and immigrants had kind of established themselves and their traditions in the Hudson Valley. They, they you know, New Netherlands, New Amsterdam becomes New York and New York. Um, okay. So those Dutch traditions, I mean, that's important, right? They come to New York. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now I'm going to jump over to the Protestant Reformation, just to point out that reformers like Martin Luther changed Christmas traditions of St. Nicholas as the gift giver and instead made the, the Christ child or in German, the Christ King, mm-hmm. uh, the bringer of the gifts on Christmas in order to try and 
get rid of the the sort of pagan associations and the Catholic associations of St. Nicholas, Martin Luther and like I said, other Protestant Reformation leaders instead started celebrating, you know, doing doing little gifts on Christmas, but it would be the Christ King who brought them. And the English would hear the Germans talking about the Christ King, and they would hear the words Chris Kringle instead Ooh. of Chris Chris King. So the Chris King Chris King becomes Chris Kingle. I like it. John Calvin, Calvinism, whose reform movement swept through northern the northern Netherlands primarily, largely succeeded in this. Um, and even though the the feast day becomes like a folk tradition, uh, you know that some people celebrated, it was sort of a lot of times celebrated in secret. And so Sinterklaas kind of remains like an underground secret in northern Netherlands, but Prisking becomes the sort of a dominant idea in the northern Netherlands. Okay, I got gotcha. you. All right. Now, under the English Reformation, we're talking Protestant Reformation, changing Catholic traditions. The English Reformation, you get Oliver Cromwell, uh, the puritanical leader of England, um, who, uh, during his reign, he outlawed Christmas services altogether. They passed strict laws uh, to catch anyone who was holding Christmas celebrations or services. Shops were ordered to stay open on December 25th, and they had troops patrol the streets to seize any food that they believed was being prepared for Christmas feasts. Sundays alone were treated as holy days, and they handed down heavy fines for any violations or suspected violations of celebrating Christmas. The war on Christmas was real, and it was, right. the, and it was the Christians that did it. Not the Obama administration. <laughs> right. Now, I've, I love this statue of, uh, of Oliver Cromwell. Um, really captures the feeling. Uh, pointing pointing down at you from uh, St. Ives like uh, the sinner that you are. Um, now, in Christmas in New England, right, um, this was a Puritan. Remember, it was, it was Puritans, right? Pilgrims, Puritans who yep. settled New England. Now, Puritan se- separatists who arrived in Plymouth, Massachusetts, they arrived on December 21st, 1620. This was uh, the Pilgrims. December 25th was basically spent building houses and paths just like any other day because they literally just got there in the middle of winter and winter in New England, you know, they're a little late to the, to the party. You know, they are, that, like, it was brutal. I mean, something like 65% of them died. Um, I mean, a whole bunch of them died like on the ship. William Bradford, the governor, his wife killed herself, uh, threw herself Dang off it. the ship because it was so awful. That's um, terrible. Although they don't say she killed herself. They say she fell off the ship accidentally, but it's like, I don't think so. Cause she was miserable. Um, Oh, whoops. I have died. Um, the pilgrims now, uh, were opposed to celebrating Christmas or Easter or any other holidays. And governor William Bradford would not allow anyone to take the 25th off from work in November of 1621. Some new colonists arrived to Plymouth and it was uh, actually mostly bachelors. Unlike that first batch that were mostly families mm-hmm. and Bradford be- on December 25th, when he found the men, these, some of these new men, outside playing Christmas sports, quote, when they came home at noon from their work, he found the men, um, Bradford found the men, in the street at play, openly, some pitching the bar, some at stool ball, and such other like sports, end quote. So Bradford hmm. took away all their toys and commanded them to go back to their homes and not come out and celebrate anymore. Christmas celebrations were always discouraged in New England. Decorations for the holiday were forbidden. And by 1659, Christmas was ruled officially illegal in New England with fines imposed on violators. You see there the public notice. 
Um, and the fines were equivalent of somewhere between three and four days wages. So no small, you know, amount, right? I mean, you know, you get fined three or four days wages just for putting a, putting a wreath on your door. And the public notice there says the observation of Christmas having been deemed a sacrilege, the exchanging of gifts and greetings, dressing in fine clothing, feasting and similar satanical practices are hereby forbidden with the offender liable to a fine of five shillings. So Puritans sought to enforce their will upon the people, subjecting them to a kind of theocratic dogma that they alone decided, right? The people wanted to celebrate as evidence from the fact that like public celebrations immediately began again as soon as they were permitted. But the Puritans rejected especially traditions of caroling and mummers and all the decorations. And they just, they saw, they, they complained that all of the traditions around Christmas were all pagan. And they like pointed to some of the things mm-hmm. we've talked about and we're like, these are not, there's nothing about this is Christian. Like just slapping the, the Chris King on it doesn't make it Christian. You know what I mean? <laughs> They're like, you can't worship the sun God and just be like, no, 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 it's Jesus. We promise. Like you're doing all the sun God stuff. Right. Right. Now they were especially mad about carolers and mummers and mummers is something that we don't really have here as much as we, it's very popular still in England. Um, mummers, Dressed in fancy costumes, often you with like role reversal at the center. Again, this yes, goes back a to the big mummers parade in Philadelphia. They have a big mummers parade every year. Okay, okay. So they, they dress up in big goofy costumes, and it's it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Now it's pretty typical that men would dress in drag, and people would dress as folk creatures. And like Saturnalia, there's like a an an anarchic kind of element to mummers caroling. These carolers would sing door to door and mummer or the carolers would sing door to door and mummers would go with them and they might cause mischief until gifts of small coins or food uh, sort of would oblige the reveler, revelers to move on to the next home. So, you know, in other words, carolers would show up, you'd open the door for them. It's cold. You let them in and the mummers would come in and like, I don't know, mess with the house until you like they, they let you kind of probably sing a carol or two and then they would like start messing with the house until you gave them something to eat or drink. Sure. And that, or like a, you know a couple of coins, and then everybody would move on. Right. Now, part of this was uh, wassailing, right? You've probably heard the song. Here we go, a wassailing. Okay, upon the wintergreen or whatever it goes. I don't know. Nope. And well, nope. wassailing was part of this, and this <clears throat> wassailing there was a wassail bowl, which was like a huge bowl of wine or maybe like uh, some sort of like mulled wine or or some sort of spiced uh, hard cider or something. And this was a communal drink meant to be consumed by the, like the mummers and carolers who came door to door. So you'd pass the bowl around, you know, and everybody would partake in the good cheer. So again, it's a real community kind of a celebration, right? Yeah. Love it. So here you go. Got a nice little picture of you with old Christmas riding his goat, carrying the wassail mummers. Yeah. So, you know, you can see old Christmas looks an awful lot like, uh, our, our, like our boy there. But you got yeah. your Christmas goat, you got your wassail bowl, you know, you got your little uh, basket of uh, and uh, an old Christmas there uh, with his crown of uh, of, of thorny evergreens um, looks awfully drunk. Yes. Right, back oh, to New York. This guy. Yeah. Back look to New this York. Creep sneaking out. Ugh, that's oh, and the, are you looking at the guy in the red? Yes. All right. Stay there for a minute. All right. So back to New York. So. Sinterklaas stories uh, are passed down in New York, you know, and the folk traditions carry on over time. 
but they actually kind of seem to fade away to a little degree in the, in the uh, 1700s, in the 18th century. But there is a revived interest in these old traditions after the revolution as these new, new Americans are trying to create some kind of national mythology, you know, kind of civic religion ideas, right? These sort of national stories, something that tie the, the nation together after independence. And this is typical, right? Like new nations always go through a kind of myth-making period where they, they try to figure out how to craft their national story. Mm-hmm. As part of this, uh, a writer in New York, a famous Knickerbocker named Washington Irving, who famously wrote about Ichabod Crane and the headless horseman of Sleepy Hollow, mm-hmm. was also largely responsible for the idea of Christmas in America. He wrote stories of old Christmas in England, and he shared the folktales of New York, and he was a very popular writer. Now, he told of St. Nick or Sinterklaas, who brought gifts to the children of the Dutch communities in New York. Okay. Irving described Sinterklaas as both flying in a wagon and having a flying horse and leaving gifts in children's shoes. So now we get to this, uh, this red-cloaked uh, guy. Quote and and do I have the quote on there? The good Saint Nicholas would often appear, would often make his appearance in the beloved city of a holiday afternoon, riding yep. again, hold on, make his appearance in a beloved city of a holiday afternoon. Again, so he comes in the afternoon, mm-hmm. riding jollily among the treetops and over the roofs of houses, now and then drawing forth magnificent presents from his breeches pockets and dropping them down the chimneys of his favorites. So he has his presents in his pockets. He drops them down the chimneys. Yes. So he wrote this in 1809. Now, we're going to talk about Belsnickel in Pennsylvania, which was largely (laughs) Pennsylvania, which was largely uh, colonized or or, or settled by Pennsylvania, uh, by Germans, much like especially Western Maryland was settled by Germans early on. Uh These German immigrants that in Pennsylvania, it's where, you know, you, you know, Pennsylvania Dutch company country. Pennsylvania Dutch country is not uh, actually the Dutch. It's Pennsylvania Deutsch country. It's the Germans. But because English Ooh. are because the English are bad at language. Yeah. Correct. So they've made a whole cottage industry out of pretending they're Dutch and putting like windmills up and selling wooden shoes and stuff. But they're Germans. I mean, they, they were ah. they're, they're Germans. And in fact, like the Amish, a lot of the Amish still speak German. They refer to everyone else, everyone from not there as English, you know. Um, but that's there. They brought German traditions with them. And, uh, but like a lot of that stuff lives on whatever. Anyway. So these German immigrants in Pennsylvania and Maryland brought their tradition of having Christmas trees with candles. And they would usually decorate their trees with like nuts, maybe some fruits and like marzipan, you know, little like mm-hmm. sweet cakes, mm-hmm. but they also we carried us. Yes. Yeah. Sweet cheeks. <laughs> I mean, sweet cakes. They also carried a story from, from, uh, their parts of Germany about a guy named Belsnickel who rewarded uh, and, and gave gifts to good children and coal to the bad ones. And he punished the bad ones with, uh, by beating them with switches. Mm-hmm. Now he left the gifts in their stockings that would ha- hang by the hearth to dry by the fire. Now you remember Sinterklaas leaves gifts in shoes. Belsnickel leaves gifts in stockings. Ooh, he stepped now, up his game. Yeah. Writing in uh, about the 1830s, uh, a writer from Allegheny County, Maryland, named Jacob Brown, wrote, quote, 
We did not hear of Sinterklaas. They, uh, we learned of a different figure. He was known as Beltsnickel or Chris Kingle. Chris Kinkle. And sometimes as the Christmas woman. Children then not only saw the mysterious person, but felt him, or rather his stripes upon their backs with his switch. The annual visitor would make his appearance some hours after dark. So again, not in the afternoon, after dark, thoroughly disguised, especially the face, which would sometimes be covered with a hideously ugly physique, generally wore a female garb, hence the name Christmas woman. Sometimes it would be a veritable woman, but with masculine force and action. He or she would be equipped with an ample sack about the shoulders filled with cakes, nuts and fruits, and a long hazel switch, which was supposed to have some kind of charm in it, as well as a sting. One hand would scatter the goodies upon the floor or in the stockings, and then the children would, and then the scramble would begin by the delighted children. But the other hand would ply the switch upon the backs of the excited youngsters that were bad. Uh-oh. But you see how, like, some of these elements of Bellsnickel. Yeah. And that has, uh, that he's known as Bellsnickel or Chris Kinkle, which sounds uh, an awful lot, which sounds an awful Chris lot Kringle. like Chris King or Chris Kringle. That's right. Now, in 1823, many people in America were shifting their Christmas, uh, shifting to Christmas as their primary day of like winter celebration instead of New Year's Day. But Protestants became really concerned about the religious aspects of the holiday because they saw it as a Catholic pagan celebration and they saw it as sinful. Like everything about it, Protestants Mm -hmm. saw as sinful in 1823. On December 23rd, 1823, the Troy, New York Sentinel newspaper published an anonymous poem that almost immediately made Christmas acceptable to Americans, Protestant and, and Catholic alike. All Americans, but Protestants are the ones who are Mm -hmm. the Protestants are the ones who keep fighting against it. The poem is called A Visit from St. Nicholas, and it begins. Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, not even the mouse. I love it. Okay, you're blacked out. I don't know. I don't trust my phone. Just my phone blacked out. It's all good. I'm just making sure. So, yeah. So 1823 was the night before Christmas comes out and it's printed in this newspaper and it's actually printed anonymously, but it gets reprinted throughout the United States in the coming years. It wasn't until 1837 that the guy who wrote it, a guy named Clement Seymour, was credited with with having written it. So it took 14 years till he got credit. Now, he published it anonymously uh, because he was a well-known writer and a serious scholar and he kind of didn't want to be associated with this, what he considered to be like a simple childish poem. He had just written to amuse his children, but it was actually his friend had taken it and submitted it to the paper secretly. And so um, Moore would, over the years, modify some of the stories uh, that he had heard and add new elements. Like, for example, he adds the reindeer to the story. He's the first guy to put reindeer into the story about St. Nicholas. Okay. Right. And he names them. Uh, and it's funny, he names them Dunder and uh, two of them, Dunder and Blixum, I which, of course, it. later on Blitzen. become, but they later on become, of course, Donner and Blitzen. That's right. But Dunder and Blixum mean thunder and lightning in Dutch. Oh. So, again, you know, he's sort of taking taking these Dutch traditions and he's mixing things in. And again, Dunder and Blixum, 
Thunder and lightning in Dutch. Thor had two goats that carried him across the sky, and he was the god of thunder and lightning associated with the Christmas. Go- you see what I'm saying? See how all these things get kind of like yes, as stories indeed. get passed on, like telephone game, like little yep. elements come through, but you don't hear the whole story. So you like, yep. yeah, yeah. Anyway, he shifted the focus, though, from Christmas Day, when, of course, Washington Irving said Sinterklaas gave gifts in the afternoon to Christmas Eve. Right. So you take it away from the actual day itself and you make it the day before. And mm-hmm. Clement Moore centered the story on the children, right? Whose visions of sugar plums, right? Their hope for gifts. They're dancing yeah. through their head. Yes. New Yorkers began to publicly celebrate the holiday for the first time, but they did it as if they'd always celebrated publicly. Now, people privately celebrated and in some communities, but like, this becomes a public thing for the right. first time after right. this poem. Now, here's an interesting thing. Charles Dickens, all the way across the pond in England, um, in large measure is the guy that kind of invents a lot of the Christmas imagery that we now celebrate. And he was inspired by like Washington Irving and, and Clement Moore to some degree. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's really interesting is Dickens invents the idea of white Christmas more than anything else. As a child, uh, six of his first nine Christmases were snowy. And it's kind of weird because he lived in this weird time where a lot of this stuff is taking place. From 1550s to 1880s, the Northern Hemisphere went through something called uh, the Little Ice Age. It's actually, um, it was consistently colder, longer winters. It was a phenomenon that was triggered, actually, to uh, to a significant degree by the massive extinction of indigenous people caused by your boy, Chris Columbus. Because all of these people were, because like 90% of the population died, 55 million people, all of the agriculture, all of the things that they had developed, uh, all went to sort of pot. So everything just grew, which of course, um, as all of these, all of these things, uh, grew all these, these, what, what used to be agricultural areas, what used to be, uh, you know, things that were controlled by people living there grew wild. And that led to a massive drop of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere because all of a sudden you have all this plant life growing, running amok and dragging more carbon CO2 out of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And because there's less CO2 in the atmosphere, less sunlight gets trapped in the atmosphere, creating, you know, the, the warming effect that we are trying to figure out how to get out of right now. Mm-hmm. So actually, the, so because all of these people died, we actually got this little ice age, which is, Fascinating. Nice. I mean, it's not that the only reason. It's not the only reason, but it was a significant, a significant cause because it led to these sure. huge. This huge, it's something they've only recently learned from like ice samples from uh, Antarctica. Is they're like, yep. oh, look at that. It's seems like a drop in CO two. That's weird. Anyway, Dickens, his memories of these white Christmases uh, would find their way into his writing first in the eighteen thirty six Pickwick Papers, and then in eighteen forty three with a Christmas Carol. Now. I mean, Dickens was, of course, and obviously was a social reformer. He was a, a huge critic of of the uh, the excesses of capitalism that he saw, like industrialization and like the rampant poverty uh, and the exploitative, you know, wealth of of the capitalist class. So, I mean, that's what Christmas Carol obviously is all about, and it's what Oliver Twist is all about. I mean, it's what a lot of Dickens is right was complaining about these problems emerging of capitalism. But he reflected this sort of emerging middle class desire to reconnect to old traditions, right? As this middle class all of a sudden has some uh, expendable income, and he was one of them, 
um, they wanted to sort of, I don't know, hearken back to the days of merry old England. And so, um, so he wrote about goose dinners and gifts for children and, and all of this sort of merry old England nostalgia and people love the idea. And it really sparks people like having goose dinners for the first time in England. And, you know, for, you know, that wasn't a thing for years. He basically was writing about like, you know, early royalty and all of a sudden, like it takes off as a middle-class sort of aesthetic. Uh, in short, kind of Dickens invents the idea that Christmas was about charity, family, warmth, and hospitality against the backdrop of like a cold and brutal, uh, although obviously beautiful landscape. So like he yep. invents all of that, all of that stuff. Um, you know, I've got a couple Dickens covers there for you for, for fun. Okay. Yes. Uh, Dickens, like I said, was inspired by Washington Irving and in, and in turn, Washington Irving was inspired by Dickens. Like they wrote, they read each other and, and, you know, like, picked up ideas from each other. Dickens famously during the Victorian era and Victoria, Queen Victoria was from the German house of Hanover. And she had a small Christmas tree as a child, something that was not common, but because she was German uh, and it was a German tradition, she did not common in England. Sure. In 1840, Queen Victoria and her husband, Prince Albert had a, uh, an image drawn up, of their beautifully decorated Christmas tree printed to be seen by the general public. It's like a picture of them. You'll see it on the next page on the next slide, decorating their Christmas tree. It's like the most uh, barren looking tree you ever saw too. It's like, just like the gaps between the branches are crazy. Yes. It's, but it's tree for sure. No, it's a real tree. And I think uh, they got that from Walmart. Yeah. They, they didn't, yeah, they had plastic apparently. Okay. Um, <laughs> and it set off a Christmas tree craze in England right around and this all happens like right at the same time that dickens starts writing a christmas carol so like you have the the sort of confluence of these two things the queen and the queen and and prince consort of england like showing everybody this christmas tree that they have in their home and thus sort of setting the cultural standard for the day and then dickens writing a christmas carol you you know what i mean like you get this Mm -hmm. like uh and the the, you know remember the ghost of christmas present it's all uh, feasting and celebrating drinking and parties and the whole thing so yes there's victoria and albert uh as idealized by the uh the artist yes so trees were historically just decorated with like nuts and fruits and little sugar ornaments maybe or like i said marzipan but in the late 16th century um hans greiner in lausche germany which is uh an area of germany called thuringia which is where if you saw that the the uh the old prince of thuringia just tried to lead a coup and overthrow germany pretty Mm -hmm. good stuff like a yeah. nice little, nice little touch. The, uh, the, the Prince of Thuringia, I've got, uh, Lausche, Germany and Thuringia. They made the very first glass baubles and tin figures designed to be hung on trees. Now, the practice didn't really spread out of, out of Thuringia, uh, much until the 1830s when Lausche began exporting his, um, well, I'm sorry, Lausche, Germany began exporting these baubles all over Germany. Um, Prince Albert from Germany was in Germany, brought some of these little glass, glass baubles to England, uh, and used them to decorate his, his tree. And then that tree, like with those little baubles all over the tree Mm -hmm. were part of that image that goes out to the public. And then people are like, Oh, so that's what you do with a Christmas tree. You put these little glass ornaments. Decorated. Yeah. Well, instead of with fruit and nuts or whatever. Like, you know, they so for England from the get-go, they're like, oh, 
we need these little glass ornaments. So you see there's a little, got a little Dutch girl there that's, uh, you know, a little milkmaid glass bubble. Yes. This is kind of what they look like. Like these, you know, this is yep. traditional. Okay. So again, Lausha starts exporting them all over Europe after that. The first American ornaments were made in New York in 1870. You'll notice that's pretty late in the game. I mean, you know, it's, it's, yeah. this has all been going on. But it wasn't until F.W. Woolworth traveled to Germany in 1880, saw the ornaments, and struck a deal and began selling them at his Woolworth stores. And that is how they became his five and dimes, that they became popular in the United States. Between 1880 and the turn of the 20th century, Woolworth had sold over 200,000 ornaments and made $25 million. They had 1,000 stores by 1910 after beginning with one in Utica, New York in 1879. So in just like 31 years, he goes from one store to 1,000. It's amazing. And in 20 years, they sell 200,000 ornaments and make $25 million for a thing that did not exist in America before that, which is remarkable. Like I said, there were a couple of them made in New York, but they were like insanely expensive because it was literally one, one little shop making them. So, okay, so let's get to the fat man. Santa Claus filters out into the culture. St. Nicholas and Sinterklaas, as stories of them spread, you know, people just, Sinterklaas just sounds like Santa Claus. That just sort of becomes how they say it. And Chris King becomes Chris Kringle. And this largely happens in order to secularize the holiday to strip away the problematic associations with Catholicism and paganism by extension. So, Sinterklaas sounds an awful lot like Saint. People understand Sinterklaas means Saint Nicholas, Saint, Saint Nicholas. So Protestants push the idea of stripping away the Christianity aspect of it and calling it calling him Santa Claus because that sounds less Catholic. And Christian, again, as Chris Chris Kringle, which is the the English corruption, is like perfectly fine. We can we can adopt that. Yep. No problem. Yep. This, um, so it increasingly is a secular holiday with a kind of religious undertone or religious root, but it needs to be generic enough for Protestants to celebrate without feeling like they're doing something satanic as, they, as they've been taught for 200 years. Right. Santa Claus was never really clear. According to Twas the Night Before Christmas, St. Nick had a red nose, which was at the time exclusively associated with drunkenness or alcoholism. Mm-hmm. He had a white beard, which again, Makes perfect sense because the holiday is associated with drunken revelry. Sure. Right. So he had a white beard and he was dressed in all fur, which again, according to, uh, twas the night before Christmas, he was wearing fur, but there's no sense of what color or anything like that or what that even looks like. I mean, you've seen what Belsnickel looks like and Belsnickel is obviously like, uh, an analog for, for St. Nick. Yep. Um, he, he and the reindeer were described in the poem as tiny, as miniature. So he was jolly and plump with a round belly, but again, things that were associated with feasting and with alcohol Mm -hmm. rather than like being fat for fat's sake, right? He's associated with plenty and he's described as being dirty and covered in soot. That's how the poem (laughs) describes it, which again, does not sound like though, like some of these elements. So I got some images of for you here of, uh, of St. Nick, uh, you know, of of early Santa Claus there. Um, you know, just like you expect for America. You see him there with a Yule log on his back and a wassail yeah. bowl, you know. Um, th- these are American images. Sure. Now, now, you got your. Uh, if you go over to your one where you got your uh, your red hatted guy with the goat, it says God Yule. 
the the fat man himself here, uh, Santa Claus was actually mostly associated with green rather than red. Because, of course, evergreens, Christmas trees, holly, mistletoe, all yep. of these are green yep. symbols of the season. Now, red, the only association with red goes all the way back to Saturnalia with the red freedom caps that everyone wore that were associated with being free, having free speech, free movement, and, and all that stuff, those Phrygian yep. caps. The red cap found its way to Germanic Yule celebrations with red-capped elves, as you might see sort of in this picture here. But the question is, how did Santa go from being associated with green or even brown uh, and a red cap, possibly, to going to having his trademark look? Well, let's ask Coca-Cola. Oh, you've already jumped ahead. Did you see the three wise men with the Phrygian caps? Um, yeah. Uh, no, not yet. Are we there yet? I might have forgotten to put that one on there. I added I it late. So you saw, okay, so advertising, right? So stop. Don't go through the Coca-Cola stuff yet. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. So hadn't son, so this is all about advertising, obviously. Santa looks like he does because of advertising. That's what's. Sure. So we have to clean him up. This is where the whole story starts going from like quaint and fun because it's all community driven to like, all right, our corporate overlords get their greasy little fingers in it. <laughs> and it, it starts slowly. So Haddon Sunblom, whose parents were from Finland and Sweden, mm-hmm. was hired by Coca-Cola to paint images of Santa Claus for a new advertising campaign launched in the middle of the Great Depression in 1931. Now, Haddon's Finn and Swede families used to send Christmas cards to the family in Michigan. And Christmas cards from Finland and Sweden were most commonly painted by someone named Jenny Nystrom. And you see here, I've got the the one with the kids, the, the elves yes. chasing the pigs. Yep. There's your piggy bank. There's your, there's your boar. You know, there's your Yule boar, right? And God Yule means good, good, good Yule tide. Who are the God creepers is... behind that guy there with the masks on? That's a little creepy. What are you talking about? The top picture. The guy with the red hat says God Yule. He's, There's that's, three guys standing behind him with, with that, masks on. You you see the clan where there is no clan. That is, he's carrying a basket on his back with bread, bread wrapped oh, in paper. Their bread like, wrapped in. Looks no, like three hoodlums. It's behind like, him about to rob no, a bank. It's baguettes. Okay. Probably stolen. Probably stolen. Uh, it's probably loaves of stolen wrapped in paper. So yeah. So Haddon Sunblom paints the image of Santa. He gets the red and white treatment because Coca Cola is red and white. So Santa gets a red suit and, you know, white trim and, and they launch this advertising campaign and he's fat as a house. Yeah. He's been eating. He's gained a lot of weight. I mean, again, like, well, he drinks Coke all the time. What do you expect? (laughs) So he gets the red and white treatment to sell Coke. Give and take. Say, I, that's my favorite. He's got a chicken. They got a drumstick in one hand, a Coke in the other, (laughs) a little, little fridge open humongous belt buckle. I mean, this man, this man, like, just performed at the Grand Ole Opry. He's got a belt buckle. Um, I mean, it's it's pretty, uh, it's pretty country. Um, so, okay. I love their old slogan, too. The pause that refreshes. What a terrible, terrible slogan. Thanks for the pause that refreshes. That is the dumbest yeah. slogan. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Haddon Sunblom. Also, uh, you can go to the, uh, the, the, the one there was uh, with Sprite Boy. Okay. You see Sprite Boy with the reindeer? I see the, the is that Sprite Boy with the cap stuck to his forehead. That is correct. That is Sprite okay. Boy. In the 1940s, Coke tried to introduce Sprite Boy. And uh, 
the funny thing about this is that like I put it like he, it actually was he was like wildly popular. Um, but here's what Sprite Boy existed to do. I mean, he existed for like 15 years, but here's what he was created to do. Coca very concerned because people were going out places and they were ordering a Coke and they didn't care what that meant. They just got it. Whatever cola was fine. Sprite boy, his whole marketing push was to say, and remember when you order a Coke, that means Coca-Cola brand solid Coca-Cola brand. Mm -hmm. So, so they created a character specifically to make sure that like they were getting credit when people ordered a Coke, like, and, and Hey, look, when you order a Coke, make sure you specify that you want Coca-Cola brand soft drink. <laughs> the soda Sprite is an homage is, is an homage to Sprite boy. Sprite <laughs> comes out in like 1960 and they name it after Sprite boy. Interesting. Yep. Now you see here his la Haddon Sundstrom's last job was the 1972 Christmas issue of Playboy. Love it. Which he painted and uh you know uh you see you see that it looks like a Coca-Cola logo there but uh of course it's not because Coca-Cola would never never I say deign to be associated with such filth. Correct. And this poor woman lost her nipple. I don't know where it went but well, it, that's what that's what happens when you're there. that's what happens when you're just painted. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. And you're not a real person. I thought you'd like that. I so did. the guy, that, the guy that gave us Santa Claus, you know, his very last job before he died was to paint for Playboy. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so next week, uh, another tradition. So yeah, so that's that's how we get Santa Claus. And Santa Claus, of course, just basically the the ad campaign is so popular that they just. Like that's what Santa looks like from that day forward. Like just never it. changes because of Coca-Cola. So we get a red and white Santa just to associate with Coke. So, okay. Christmas cards uh, are kind of an, another, like, you know, sort of mildly interesting story um, because of advances in transportation and printing and just industrialization. Generally, it was became cheap to like send correspondence through the mail in England in mm -hmm. the 1840s. Uh, you could actually send mail for like a penny. And this guy named Henry Cole, actually got his whole thing was he got tired of getting too many letters at Christmas time and he was tired of having to respond to all of them. So he came up with the idea of creating a generic card that could just be sent out to everybody uh, yeah. as like, you know, so he didn't have to write back to everyone. Mm -hmm. And that is my friend, how we got Christmas cards was because one dude, because one dude was like, man, I am so tired of having to actually think about an another human being and interact with them in a personal, meaningful way by writing them a note. I would much rather just like a piece of cardstock that says, yeah, I, I thought of you. Not much, but I did think of you. <laughs> I was like, hey, here's a thing. I remember you exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so he created this generic card. It showed a, a family celebrating flanked by images of people of the family helping the poor, as you see I love there. It. Um, but again, helping the poor. This was Charles Dickens's sort of... Uh, uh, contribution to all this and this guy henry cole is inventing this right at the as dickens is writing christmas carol and this idea of charity is like is like being associated with christmas like because it wasn't before it wasn't about helping the poor it was about the poor 
It was about the poor having role reversal and having a, a celebration where they were in charge and had freedom, which they were denied the rest of the year. And now it becomes this thing about the, the, the middle class or the ruling class giving, giving something to the poor as opposed to like the old celebration was the poor taking to the streets and like being given gifts because people were afraid of them. Because they were like mobbed, they were like bobbed up, going door to door, drunk, saying, "Give us food, or we will tear this place down." You know what I mean? Like it evolves. From, but I mean, do you see what I'm saying? Like there is a real meaningful, like material change that has taken place from from uh, where the poor really were in power. Like where these these winter celebrations were were a celebration for and by regular people. Yes. With role reversals, where they got to have a temporary control over society instead of the ruling classes and now it's become about uh, the you know how much will the ruling classes deign to give a little scrap to the poor you know what i mean Correct. like it's it's you know uh, even even in the even in the most generous uh scrooge at the end of christmas carol model it's still a condescension model as opposed to an empowering model you know what i mean it used to be like christmas used to be empowering for the poor and now it's about the middle class condescending to them and this guy right here in the picture you see on the card with the yeah. bald head on top, that's Mr. Hallmark. That is correct. Um, so, again, around the same time that uh, New York starts for the first time making glass ornaments, uh, a couple years mm-hmm. before before Woolworths uh, sort of mass introduce the, introduces them, Prang and Meyer start selling Christmas cards in America for the very first time. And this is one of the earliest ones. You know, this, all the Typical Christmas stuff, as you see here. <laughs> Frogs and toads playing music. So, hurrah for Santa! Yes, <laughs> Santa. I mean, they're on. A, they're on. They're very close. Him and Santa. He calls him Santa. It's so bizarre. A jolly time just to remember that Christmas comes the twenty fifth of December. Like it, you could. I mean, it's funny because like you can kind of see the reason. I mean, like I like this card because you can again kind of see how. This is still something of a new thing for people mm-hmm. to publicly celebrate. So they're they're kind of I mean, it is completely stripped of anything religious. Right. You know what I mean? And and intentionally so, because because that's the whole point. Now, I I like this. Uh the um Christmas cards come out the you know the eighteen seventies in America. And while Calvin Coolidge, Herbert Hoover, and FDR all like were the first like the first presidents to send either like some sort of Christmas message or Christmas note, uh, or even like uh, a little card, a Christmas card. President Eisenhower was the first one to actually send official white house Christmas cards in 1953. And they have been made by Hallmark from 1953 all the way until the present day, the official Christmas card. Now, basically every Christmas card from the white house is like a formal card on like, you know, beautiful stock with like an image mm-hmm. of the presidential seal or like an embossed image of the white house. Um, the Eisenhower's did experiment with, with it a little bit. They had like two of them, one in 1957 and one other, this one you see here is from 57 where they, they did have a little fun with it, but I guess ever since then presidents were like, we can't have fun uh, with Christmas card. I like this one. <laughs> this is a great card with the two of them and like the costumes. I think it's great, but no, we can't do that anymore. We're, we have to take the, the, the the office too seriously. We can't have fun with it. Mm-hmm. All right. Now I want to tell you the story uh, of, uh, of how we got Rolo, the red nosed reindeer. You're familiar with Rolo, of course. Um, 
Is that Rudolph's cousin? Or or Reginald the Red-Nosed Reindeer, perhaps? Well, anyway, no bother. I'll, no matter. I'll tell you. So until 1939, the Montgomery Ward Company would give away coloring books to children every year at Christmas, um, you know, when they would come in shopping with their parents. But in 1939, uh, they decided they were going to save some money by making their own books to give away instead of basically buying a bunch of coloring books to give out. They tasked one of their employees, a guy named Robert May, who was uh, one of their copywriters, with mm-hmm. writing a short children's story to give away. He he was told that it had to be a little story about an animal, and that was really all. He didn't get much more guidance than that. Okay. First, Rolo the Red-Nosed Reindeer, then Reginald, and then he finally decided on Rudolph. Rudolph. And he wrote the story, and Wards Rudy. and Montgomery Wards rejected the story because the red nose was associated with drinking and they thought, no, the parents will think we're giving the kids a book about uh, a drunk reindeer. Oh, yep. So he asked another Montgomery wards uh, employee, an artist named Denver Gillen to go with him to the den, to the Lincoln zoo and to sketch a cute, to go look at reindeer in order mm-hmm. to sketch a cute reindeer to go along with the story. And Denver Gillen did and sketched kind of the Rudolph that we sort of mostly know. Mm-hmm. And it worked. He put, he like included these illustrations and resubmitted it. And Montgomery Ward like accepted it. And they had the, like a soft cover book printed, printed away or printed up. And they gave away in 1939, 2.4 million copies because of world war two. They were not able to give it away again until 1946 because of uh, paper rations. Mm-hmm. But in 1946, they gave away another 3.6 million copies. Hmm. After that, now in 1946, May uh, decided he wanted to see if he could get the copyright from Montgomery Wards. And this is going to be the most mind-blowing part of everything that I tell you. This story is fundamentally a story that could only happen then, could never happen now. Okay? Mm-hmm. May went to Montgomery Wards and said, hey, do you think I can have the copyright for the story that I wrote? Because, you know, I wrote it, but you own it, and I would very much like to try and publish it. Mm-hmm. Because I think I could make some money doing that. Mm-hmm. I think Montgomery Wards did. I said, absolutely. Go ahead. Ed, well, you have to wait until 1947 because we want to give it away this year at Christmas. But after that, it's yours. And they gave it to him for free. Beautiful. This would never happen today. Of course not. He could not find a publisher, however, because everybody was like, um, yeah, they gave away like 6 million copies in like two years. Are you kidding me? Everybody yeah. already has one. But eventually he found a small publisher in New York who said, I read the story and I, and I relate to the story because when I was a kid, I was Rudolph. And so that's how it got published. And he managed to, uh, the, they, they printed like a small run of a thousand copies that sold out immediately. And, uh, and then ended up selling, of course, hundreds of thousands and then millions. And Robert May, you know, had a comfortable life. So here is a, a copy of the original uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer book here opened up for you with Montgomery Ward wishes you a Merry Christmas. That's the original drawing that he got drawn up for Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I love it. You know, with uh, with his little uh, stumpy antlers, which is weird because male reindeer don't have antlers. Okay. 
All right. So here's the best. Uh, the next is that we're going to do the best of the rest of the old world traditions that continue to kind of echo in our present. Remember, St. Nicholas uh, was a guy who gave gifts to good children, and that was the end of it. There's no punishment aspect. There's no coal. You get no. that a little bit with Belsnickel, um, and you get that with Odin, but you don't get it with, with Santa Claus. There's no story of that. But eventually, you know, these things get merged. You get it with Zwarte Piet, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But in um, but some of the ones I want to talk about, like just briefly, um, in uh, Alpine, in the, the Alpine regions of uh, Northern Europe, there are stories of Krampus mm-hmm. or Krampus, who is a horned kind of monster that comes along with St. Nick on December 5th, on St. Nicholas <laughs> Day, St. Nicholas Eve, who collects bad children and carries them off to torture them all year. Ooh, that's not good. In Italy, of course, there is Bafana, the Italian witch. Yeah. Who who delivers gifts on uh, Epiphany Eve instead? Who uh, you know? Uh, again, like you you can harken back to some of these mother goddess ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, in um, Slavic and uh, more sort of Slavic Alpine regions, there is uh, Pershta, who uh, <clears throat> was another a figure associated with Epiphany or Twelfth Night, who came to reward good children and punish or punish the bad on you know January fifth, <clears throat> and in Poland. Uh, among Poles and, and again, some of the other sort of Polish um, and the Rus uh, Slavic areas, you know, sort of up into Russia, there was a Turan, who's a Polish monster that kind of accompanies revelers as a nuisance mummer, essentially. Uh, they don't really have mummers, but they have uh, Turan, who mm-hmm. basically go door to door and they do the same thing. They they get into the house and they cause trouble until the person who's there offers, the, you know, a few coins or a drink or food or whatever. And, uh, and then the, they all leave. So here you go. You see Krampus there, uh, you yep. know, stuffing a couple of children into a basket with his, I uh, love it. but again, you, you can kind of see how this harkens to the goat. Yes. Um, <clears throat> pretty clearly. These are really old images, by the way. I mean, we're going back, you know, into the 18th and uh, 18th century for these. Images. Sure. Gruss von Krampus means greetings from Krampus. And that is an actual greeting, like an actual card that people would mail to each other in the 19th century. Like rather than a Christmas card, they would meet, re- mail out greetings from Krampus cards. Hmm. Pursta there, you see, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah, Pursta. And Turan, you know. Turan. Again, I guess you could, like, again, I think you can really see the, the, the goat and sort of get oh, where absolutely. some of this stuff, where all this stuff is sort of a shared, these sort of shared experiences. All right. Uh, so, get, again, getting into some of these other tropes. In 1897, an eight-year-old Virginia O'Hanlon wrote a famous question uh, into the New York Sun newspaper, and it was printed with Francis Parcellus Church's uh, even more famous answer. And uh, so this happened in 1897. She wrote this thing in, and she said, you know, some of my friends say there is no Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. My father told me, if you see it in the sun, it's true. So I'm asking you, because you're the New York son, you know, is there a Santa Claus? And of course he wrote, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. And he goes on to talk about how Christmas is a spirit of giving and a spirit, a, a time of, of family and, and shared uh, experience and of revelry and kindness and all yep. of the things bringing us together. And that, that none of that could be possible without a Santa Claus. I mean, that's sort of the idea. Correct. The New York Sun republished this story uh, starting in 1924, every year from 1924 to 1950, when the Sun went out of business. Uh, we have the, the Christmas movie. And here's an interesting thing. From almost the very beginning of, time, of film, there have been Christmas movies. From 
uh, from the movie Scrooge in 1901 to the movie Scrooge in 1913 to the movie Scrooge in 1935 <laughs> to A Christmas Carol in 1938 and a whole bunch of other Scrooges and Christmas Carols along the way. Correct. All the way up to uh, the very first animated TV special, Mr. Magoo's. You want to take a wild guess? It's uh, A Christmas Carol. A Christmas Carol in 1962. Um, yeah, that, well, it, it all leads up to the greatest you know, Christmas movie of all time, Die Hard, which is on every night now. Yeah, Die Hard. Um, yeah, it's a good one. It's I like Die Hard as a Christmas movie because the whole story wouldn't like you couldn't have the story without Christmas. So the whole debate Correct. about whether it's a Christmas movie is silly because it's like the whole that reason a Christmas they're party. In, yeah, exactly. Like that's the whole, that's and that's also why the money's there. Yes. Like that if it wasn't for Christmas, none of it works. So yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's a it's a silly argument. Um, I mean, I get that it's not about Christmas themes, but it's uh, it's impossible without Christmas. But he here's a question the, for you: the Santa outfit on the dead guy too, right? Ho 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 on his chest. I mean, all kinds of Christmas references. Yeah, I mean, but also the, it is possible to have a movie that is uh, that is not a Christmas movie that incorporates Christmas into it. That, that is also possible. Correct. Yeah, correct. Okay. Uh, so Santa Claus, however, okay, so so we know Christmas Carol, Scrooge, and all that very popular uh, element of film. Um, Santa Claus, though, actually made his very first appearance on film in a movie, a, a like one minute forty second movie called Santa Claus in eighteen ninety eight, huh. uh, which I think I put an image there for you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, it's pretty wild. He, uh, I mean, again, pretty pretty early on, you know. Um, Walt Disney's Santa's Workshop Silly Symphony in 1932 um, was the first like animated Santa and put Santa in the red suit just one year after Coca-Cola launched its rather incredibly popular ad campaign. So even a year later, the red suit with the white trim was already like the the dominant idea just because right. of Coca-Cola doing it uh, the way they did. Because, again, it it just it's one of those things. It just sort of caught the caught fire in the public consciousness. Yep. I want to talk for a minute, though, about um, probably the most famous Christmas movie, I think. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. Yes. And and maybe and, and certainly one of, if not the best. I mean, you could well, jokes aside about Die Hard. I mean, I think It's a Wonderful Life is uh, is a very special film as it, it captures something about the hopefulness of, of humanity and also something about the idea of um, of the the person whose humanity is unrecognized by the person themselves. Like, uh, you know, there's something about the kind of, uh, the hero who doesn't recognize that they're heroic, the person, you know what I mean? The savior who doesn't sure. know they're a savior. And sure. there's, there's something universally human in that whole story. Um, that is why it, it resonates, but it has an interesting story. This was a Frank Capra film. Um, and you know, we could talk about Frank Capra one day. Cause, uh, I think he, he great filmmakers also, I don't know, kind of a scab of a guy. Um, okay. But anyway, he, um, but that's a, a story for another day. Sure. Frank Capra, he, he's also a guy who like later on in life, like in the seventies would like basically complain that like uh, all, all movie is now porn, uh, in the sixties. He basically complained. Everything's pornographic now. Um, oh yeah. But which is whatever in the sixties. I'm like, okay, sure. But also his big thing was uh, he, he like went on and he was like, Everything, everything is for masturbators today. And I'm like, dude, what is wrong with you? Like you are like, you are a serious weirdo. If like, that's what you're, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I don't know, man, 
I don't know a whole lot of people jerking it to Apocalypse Now. I think right, uh, right, I think right. maybe you're making sweeping generalizations that are really weird. Like you've got a weird obsession, my dude. Anyway, um, like okay. Anyway, um, so the movie was supposed to come out in January of 1947, but RKO, the uh, studio that that produced the film, there's a lot of backstory. Like there was a lot of there were a lot of rewrites. They brought in a bunch of people. It got sold a couple times before they made it. Um, some really famous uh, writers worked on it, like Dorothy Parker, for example, and um, uh, what was that guy's name? Trumbo. Uh, anyway, Trumbo, one of the guys who was Bar- Dorothy Parker and Trumbo were both caught up in the uh, the Hollywood blacklist later on. They were both blacklisted. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, who had involvement in the script at one time or another. And um, anyway, RKO buys it. They're supposed to release it in January of 1947, which again, is really weird. It's a Christmas movie and they're not releasing it until January. That's weird. Um, again, because we think of things so differently now, like a Christmas movie mm-hmm. would have to come out at Christmas. Okay. And it didn't yet. Like that wasn't yet part of the the, the calculus. So, um, but they decided to push it back two weeks. So it could be released on December 20th, 1946. And they did that just because they wanted to get it in for uh consideration for, for the um, uh, awards season for 1946. Which actually turns out to be probably a big mistake because 1947, they didn't really have as much competition, but they didn't know that yet. Right. Anyway, the movie was a, a bit of a flop. I mean, it kind of did well. It made $3.3 million, which in 1946 is a lot of money. Um, But yeah. it was extremely expensive to make because they built the entire town um, as a set. And so uh, it lost $565,000 uh, overall. Oh. Well, now, that's a lot to of put money it in, back then. Yeah, and to put it in perspective, Miracle on 34th Street came out in, in uh, 1947 and made 2.7 million. So it made less Miracle on 34th made uh what $600,000 less, but it made 2.1 million in profit. So, you know, uh Wonderful Life lost half a million dollars, more than half a million dollars. It's a uh, Miracle on 34th made less money but made, you know, way more profit. Like it was profit. Yes. Okay. Yes. So so 3.3 million was uh was very disappointing. The it was like the 26th or 27th highest grossing movie that year. I think the the number one made um like 11 and a half million or something. So again, I mean it did it did fine but it didn't do like considering how we think of it's a wonderful life. It did nothing like what we would expect. Right. Here's an interesting thing though. The FBI issued a memo about it's a wonderful life warning that the movie warning about the movie quote with regard to the picture, It's a Wonderful Life, redacted, stated in substance that the film represented rather obvious attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lionel ba- Barrymore as a Scrooge type so that he would be the most hated man in the picture. This, according to these sources, is a common trick used by communists. In addition, redacted, stated that, in his opinion, this picture deliberately maligned the upper class attempting to show the people who had money were mean and despicable characters, end quote. So, so this is the FBI, uh, lest you, you know, ever think that this was like some sort of leftist organization, uh, right. concerned that It's a Wonderful Life was a communist film because it showed a mean banker. But what's funny, of course, is they failed to mention how the rich banker and villain Mr. Potter gets away with robbery without any punishment. Like... <laughs> You know what I mean? Like he literally yeah. robs the town and is not punished <laughs> in any way. Like you would think like they might've <laughs> noticed that as they were 
worried about the bad message that the I mean the whole movie He's a loan shark. The guy's a loan shark. He's the uh, movie yeah, oh yeah. And the movie is about like I mean, George Bailey is a banker for God's sakes. The movie is about like um it, it's about a kind of more um uh, like an FDR brand of of kind of social democracy where like you know you have like the small like you like to say the small businessman of George Bailey right like the hometown banker who doesn't have who doesn't have like psychotic interest of expanding his bank to cover you know the globe he just wants to be like a community like a pillar of the community and right. and you know like like uh what what I would even refer to as like uh the healthy the healthy idea of capitalism where you where you don't try to scale up to be the biggest you know widget producer in the world because you sort of get to a point of being psychotic because you just can't grow forever it's silly right anyway i just love that the fbi felt compelled to issue a memo warning about this movie <laughs> all right so uh anyway that's my favorite part about its wonderful life is that it lost money and the fbi was very concerned <laughs> uh so Oh, sorry. The other thing about uh, It's Wonderful Life was because it lost money, it disappeared. It got Mm -hmm. released on TV in like 1974. And when it was re-released on TV 30 years later, might have been uh, 76 even, when it was re-released on TV, for the first time, people were like, holy cow, that's a great movie. It languished in obscurity for 30 years. When it got re-released, that was when people loved it. And it has been a staple every ever since. So it, it it took 30 years after it came out before anybody cared about this movie. And and now my favorite thing about that is like people like my mom who like, you know, didn't see it until they were like in their 30s for the first time because they wouldn't have been old enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like saw it when they're in their 30s and now think of it as like as it because it was still made when they were like children or before they were children. Like, think of it as this, like, timeless classic that they've been watching their whole life. But it's like, no, like, it was when you were an adult and you were pining for the days of your childhood, like everybody else who was in their 30s and 40s who saw it again. They were like, you know, it was like nostalgia porn. You know what I mean? Yep. And then yep. and then it's and, and again, it is a fantastic movie. Don't get me wrong. But I just think it's funny how it it languished forever. Anyway, in 1962, the very first uh, animated TV special came out with Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Of course. There were other Christmas specials before this, but they were all like variety shows that were pretty forgettable because they were like one-offs. But Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol sort of uh, becomes a bit of a staple for a couple of years until the uh, UPA goes out of business. Rankin-Bass introduced Rudolph in 1964, really marking the second one with stop animation, stop the stop motion animation. And Charlie Brown came out in 65. And of course, the Christmas special, like uh, the rest has been history. Um, All of these things have created a kind of tug to define the meaning of Christmas, right? Like all of these different elements sort of help pull Christmas into whatever it means. And increasingly, though, that meaning is rooted almost exclusively in a kind of virtue signaling and consumption that has nothing to do with Christmas uh, as it has been celebrated throughout like all of history. And so, um, you know, like on the left and the right, I mean, to some degree, I guess, not left as much, I guess, but like like liberals uh, and, and the right, like, you know, the the kind of um, adamant, uh, the adamant, almost aggressive, like keep Christ in Christmas kind of things that you see that sure. are like they're they're kind of aggressive. You know, the way that they are stated, not like, you know, not like we keep Christ in Christmas. They're you know, it's always, you like keep Christ in Christmas is a command, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, yeah, but like, don't you realize that like 
it was Christians who were like, well, we would like to celebrate this holiday, but only if you sort of tone down the, the, the Catholic, the Christian, right. you know, the Christian elements, we want this to be a secular holiday, not a Christian one, because if it's Christian, we have to acknowledge that it's Catholic. And if it, we have to acknowledge it's Catholic, we have to acknowledge that it's pagan. And if we do that, we can't celebrate. So let's just right. like, you know, let's make it about Santa Claus and not about Christkind. Let's call it Chris sure. Kringle and not the Christ child. And that's what's so interesting is that like the virtue signaling, you know, from, from the Starbucks, you know, whatever, which becomes a virtue signal, the happy holidays, I guess, becomes a virtue signal. <laughs> and I mean, it does, it becomes sort of a, mm-hmm. a virtue. Like, sure. like I, I am a virtuous person because I am acknowledging that some people don't celebrate the holiday by saying happy holidays. And I mean, I know not everybody is consciously thinking of that, but it has become a kind of virtue signal in the same way that, and you know, this to be true. There is a kind of hostility to the way some people say Merry Christmas, like sure. Aggressively to make sure that, you know, they're not saying happy holidays. I've heard it. I've heard the, I've heard the people like at the grocery store say it sometimes where it's just like, dude, you're not really wishing anybody a Merry Christmas. You're like daring them to fight you. Like it's, you <laughs> know what I mean? it's not, you know what I mean? Like you can hear that undertone of like, come at me, bro. And I think it's really interesting that it like it's that all of this stuff that roots that that goes back to this idea of like, well, we've lost the true meaning of Christmas is like, no, dude, like you've lost what like this holiday has always been about. You are currently inventing a new real meaning of Christmas the way that everybody always has. This has been a a, a contested idea for a million years. And just, you, you know, what I mean, it's always been a kind of contested yep. idea that's changed over time. And anyway. So I, again, I mean, I love Christmas. I love the whole idea, but I think mm-hmm. it's silly to, to sort of make it a, a cultural fight because it, it's a syncretic religion. It all, I mean, a syncretic holiday. It always has been. Sure. Anyway, I have one last little like story to tell you about because I find it to be absolutely both batshit crazy and, and unbelievably fascinating. And okay. you're going to have a link that I want you to click here. I'm not I sure. See. Okay. Before you click on that, I just want to tell you okay. a little bit of backstory, and then I'm going to go, go into it. So this is a story about Beethoven and Kentucky Fried Christmas. Okay. Two, two stories, really, about Beethoven and then about Kentucky Fried Christmas. All right. Now, in the country of Japan, a mere, like, one and a half percent of the population is Christian. It is a, an, an exceedingly small percentage of the population. Almost everyone is Shinto. Uh, and then there's, of course, a significant Buddhist uh, population, but like 75% of Japanese population is Shinto. Uh, I mean, you know, it is, is, uh, you know, a, uh, extraordinarily, um, singular religion society. Okay. Nevertheless, there are two very interesting traditions there that are associated with, of all things, Christmas, something that you would not think would even like pluck the 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 you know sort of move the dial at all uh sure. it, you know in japan and these two things are <clears throat> their obsession with ode to joy from beethoven's ninth okay and kentucky fried chicken oh well okay. i don't blame them there so here's the thing ode to joy beethoven's ninth uh the ode to joy is is perhaps one one of the most perfect uh pieces of music ever created um mm-hmm. It is it is a, a, a celebration of humanity and the hopefulness of humanity, um, <clears throat> you know, written by a, a German guy uh, in the midst of of uh, national 
uh, turmoil of time where where the his the the nation state or the city states of Germany the 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 the, the, the principalities are were in a, a state of flux and there was a kind of burgeoning national movement and um, you know but to sort of find this brotherhood of man uh, that he finds in Ode to Joy is is remarkable and I I find it to be again like one of the most meaningful uh, moving pieces of art that has ever been produced and um, anyway so I understand why somebody might like it but how it gets to Japan is weird it's not weird it's just like it's just crazy so during World War One. A significant number of German POWs were sent to Japan to remove them thoroughly from the fighting. Uh-huh. During Christmas, to pass the time, they sang Ode to Joy. They would just sing, you know, in the German, Beethoven's Ninth, you know, Ode to Joy. <clears throat> For whatever reason, the Japanese fell in love with it as a result. They even a nickname. Daiku, meaning Big Nine. <laughs> in 2009, uh, it was performed by 55 different orchestras in Japan in December. And the three largest made it their, their last performance of the year. It's that important. And here's the other thing. Perform it in German, despite the fact okay. that many of them do not know what any of the words mean. Right. There are these crazy interviews that you can go if you just like YouTube these things. You can find all of these people who sing, who will who will like do these public performances, and then are asked like, "Oh, well, what do you think? What is it about the words? What is it? You mean? I don't know what any of them mean, but they love." It's like, the... it's like me singing La Bamba. It is, yeah, sort of, yeah. It's like it's there's something universal about the whole thing. So I, mean, I could sing La Bamba. I don't know what I'm saying though. So I want you to click on that link. Okay. I'm just going to see. I'm not going to play it so it doesn't like mess up the audio both ways. Once you click on the link, and I want you okay. to see this performance. It, it is a 17-minute video. You can kind of jump ahead a couple minutes if you like. That's mm-hmm. probably best. But I want you to see the size of this performance in Japan that they do every year. That's that's very cool. 10,000 people. <clears throat> why, is, uh, why is my audio not working now? Well, because you have to turn the mic off. So like I said, you just it's fine. Listen to it for a minute. Jump ahead so you can hear them all singing because it's like you've never heard a ten thousand person orchestra, like a choir rather. You've never heard that. No one has, unless you're in Japan. Like it's an insane thing. All right, yeah, we're we're on we're we're almost done. We're we're at the very end of this. I just obviously this is long. I mean, I know, but like I, I hope this has been fun. I mean, it's kind of interesting, I think. It is. Very. But yeah, that that whole like ten thousand person or- choir is insane. It's, it it's is. an insane performance. Uh that they that they every year they do a 10,000 person choir and it's like a huge deal to be part of it. You don't have to be like a professional. Like they just bring in a bunch because when you have 10,000 people, Oh sure. It all sounds great. It's fine. If a thousand people sound terrible, you know what right. I mean? Like the, like it's, it's, it's just such an, so wild that this has developed in, in a hundred years become this kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's just yes. an incra- insane thing. Okay. So that's the one thing. And again, I, I, I bring that up because I think it, fits with what i'm trying to say about christmas that it's like a thing where like people just adopt these elements and they just it, it just kind of you can kind of do that you know what i mean like here you have a nation where nobody's a christian and like they're like yeah chris like ode to joy that traditional christmas hymn we do that every year like it's just a crazy thing so okay so here's the last little bit the part about kfc all right 
So uh, I think this is, again, a kind of a wild thing. So despite there being so few Christians, like we said, in the 1960s, uh, candy companies, confectionery companies, began promoting Christmas as a winter festival in Japan. And they basically promoted it as like an excuse to buy cakes and candy, hmm. which makes sense because that's what they make with cakes and candy. So they're like, hey, we've got an idea. We can market this as a winter festival. Yeah. <laughs> so people kind of did this for the kids for you know a decade or so. But then in the 1970s, Kentucky Fried Chicken opened uh, its first franchises in Japan. And this is where it gets interesting. In 1974, KFC launched a Christmas promotion. It was a bucket of chicken and a bottle of wine together. Hmm. And they, they basically did it as a Christmas thing. They called it Kentucky for Christmas. Mm -hmm. By doing this, they shifted the holiday from a kids event, like a thing where people didn't really celebrate, like I said, but they would use it as an excuse to buy candies or cakes and sort of give them to the kids as like a little, Mm -hmm. you know, as a, a, a novelty almost. But then by promoting it as a bucket of chicken bottle of wine, they shifted it to this adult-focused event, or at the very least, something that wasn't only for children. It was a holiday for adults, too, right? And it all started when a tourist in Japan mentioned to like somebody at a, a KFC, they were like, yeah, uh, you know, I'm getting KFC because while I'm here, I can't get turkey. So, you know, I thought I'd have KFC for Christmas. It's the closest thing I can get. And so, again, the idea just for whatever reason just kind of caught on. KFC does more than or at least one third of its total sales for the year between December 23rd and 25th in Japan. <laughs> That's crazy. They sell uh, the, this data is from uh, from 2019. 800,000 buckets and 300,000 large family barrels. On those wow. three three days, you have to order at least a month ahead. They start <laughs> advertising in October, and when they start advertising, one of the things they do is they give now the website launch date for their special KFC Kentucky for Christmas uh, promotion, and you have to like go to the website and and order in advance. You see the pictures, yeah. So you got you know you got a, a very kind of Asiany looking Colonel Sanders. Dressed in his uh, Santa outfit, which is just, everything about that picture is just unnerving to me. It all looks like, like the statue looks a little bit racist, but it's not. I mean, I get that it's not within the context. It, everything about it looks a little racist in America. You know what I mean? Like it's all a little weird. But then that last picture is just like a line of people who are lined up to pick up their buckets of chicken. Yeah, uh, for, for Christmas. Um, obviously, the wide angle lens only goes so far, but like every KFC has lines around the block for people it's crazy. who. Have, it is wild, like of all the things. So, all right, to wrap it all up, obviously, the idea of the kind of winter tradition, solstice or Christmas or whatever, basically go all the way back to the beginning of civilization and probably even earlier than that. You know, I mean, they probably go back to like, you know, wandering in the wilderness, uh, you know, hunting yep. uh, wild uh, animals, following your food. But across time and distance, um, various elements of the rituals, the worship, the celebration have all kind of blended into this one thing. And what I think is especially interesting is how the focus of the holiday has shifted from a kind of communal uh, celebration, primarily of of the the uh, underclasses, 
to a kind of familial focus, right? Under with Dickens, you know, as there's a sort of shift towards the idea of the family. And then that focus even shifted from like, I mean, so now like children have become the center of the holiday as opposed to children being part of the working class and the whole working class being part of it. You know, everybody mm-hmm. being kind and not just working class. I mean, you know, Octavian Augustus was like giving gifts and stuff, but like for Saturnalia, but it was like an opportunity for regular people to do stuff that was verboten the rest of the year. You know, if you're the emperor, you can gamble anytime you damn well please. But like, if you're, you know, if you're like John Q. Mason guy, you you cannot because you know the the retribution could be swift. So right. anyway, but the f- focus shifted both from communal to a familial kind of holiday, right? It focused, it, it shifted from outside to inside, right? It used to be very much an outdoor event. You go door to door, you know, all that stuff. And people still, the elements of that are there with like caroling and things like, but sure. like, but it's no longer the, the central focus. And I think most of us roll our eyes at caroling at this point, you know? Um, and then from like regular people to children have become sort of the focus of the, of the gifts and things like that from regular people, like getting gifts of like food and necessity to make up for a bad year, uh, you know, to like children getting, uh, getting toys. And since Coca-Cola, of course, the holiday has been uh, an ever expanding kind of commercialized spectacle stripped of whatever greater meaning it, it used to have for regular people. Um, but again, I think the most interesting of all is maybe how this holiday has, was restricted or outlawed by Protestant Christians who only accepted it once it could be secularized. Like that's the most interesting part. Um, because of course, Christmas is literally steeped in these pagan symbols, these pagan practices, these pagan rituals. Um, and, and, uh, and all of those things though have themselves been those rituals, those symbols, those, those, those practices have themselves been stripped of any meaning and just wrapped in a kind of crass consumerism that, that I guess really kind of in some ways began with Roman Saturnalia merchants, but really has been perfected by the United States. And, you know, it's okay, but. The whole like like the whole idea of like a war on Christmas shows how silly people are because it's like you're fighting over a non thing, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you really are are fighting over a non thing. So we get to my last little slide there because I'm like, you know, so we've got the crass consumerism and that's bad enough, but now, now we found a way to get kids accustomed to the surveillance state by giving them Elf on a shelf. So it's somehow gotten even worse <laughs> than ever before. I don't know. Uh, I guess we're all in an absolute free fall and society's about to collapse. So um, <laughs> on that, on that very hopeful note, uh, I hate elf on the shelf. I, I, <laughs> God, it yeah. is, I, I see uh, some pretty ingenious ways to, to have him set up, but sure. Um, I personally don't have one on my shelf. Yeah. I, uh, we, we, <clears throat> On a on a personal admission, uh, we we do this year for the first time. I have uh, wholeheartedly rejected this, and Carl and I had previously agreed we would not be doing this uh, tradition because it's just like it's the because to me it's the most blatant, uh, like crass consumerist you know sort of idea that's just come out. Uh, yeah. It's like okay, here we've created a new tradition that you know there's nothing organic about it. You know what I mean? It's just like right. here, here's a. I mean, at least with like Santa Claus, you're like okay, well, Coca-Cola it sort of transforms the tradition, uh, the traditional look. But Santa Claus had long been a folk tradition. You know what I mean? Like it became consumerist because of Coca-Cola, but at least it like, but it it has roots in a kind of organic, you know, folk way. Yeah. Uh, Elf, Elf on the shelf is just like. Here, here's this here's this thing that like comes 
like prepackaged with a whole series of, of rituals that are so completely stripped of meaning. Um, I mean, and that's not to say my, my daughter loves it. It's the, like the, she's like the best thing in the world. She thinks it's the greatest. And so, I mean, I get the joy that comes from that, but also like, I hate that. It's just like a thing that is, is so literally devoid of, 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 uh, of any kind of, actual deeper meaning that it's it's a the meaning is all just superficiality you know what i mean yeah can't stand it so on that note on that very happy note um <laughs> i gotta go get elf on the, i gotta go get our elf on the shelf uh, yeah you gotta go put it in a new out, little position out from off the bathroom mirror and put her somewhere else so uh <laughs> anyway so on that note, happy holidays everybody Hope everybody happy has, holidays. A, has a, a yo saturnalia <laughs> let's go um, let's root for chris kringle this year that's yeah and the next uh the next person who aggressively tells you merry christmas just be like such a jackass like just such an idiot i, I always say merry christmas no hey merry well, christmas you know i th- i think fine i i think that there was a i think there was a sort of much ado made about this a few years ago that became uh I, personally i i think it was like a it was a a thing that was the, the the tension around that got all ginned up into for no reason. I mean, I think, I think some people started saying like, Hey, you know, happy holidays is a more inclusive way to say it. And also a thing that we've been saying for 300 years. And so not like, not like an invented phrase to like, you know, to try and strip Christmas of its meaning or something more that it reflects that it's a holiday season and there are several things going on. And, you know, like, like I have no problem with that. I mean, it's the same as like seasons greetings. I mean, like, what's the difference? It's we've been Merry saying Christmas the and a happy we, new year. But people, my point is that people have been saying those things for for hundreds of years. It's not a big deal, sure. but it became imbued with fake meaning as a way to create outrage. It was literally, you know, it's a thing that, I mean, honestly, people said happy holidays. Like you watch old movies in the forties, uh, like in the forties and fifties, and people would say it, and it was sure. no problem. And then all of a sudden, like in the 2000s, it became a problem. And it was like, well, wait, why is it a problem now when people have been saying this forever? It's not stripping Christmas away. But you know what I mean? That's why it's just like, it's so dumb. It's just so dumb. It's a, a thing people can fight about that has no meaning. It's, 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 it's devoid of value to, to be like mad about happy holidays. And like I of said, course. when I'm, when I go to the store and things like that, if somebody says Merry Christmas to me, I'll say it back. But I, I usually lead with happy holidays because I don't know you, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think, I don't think I would, I should offend anybody by saying Merry Christmas. Like, exactly. cause it's, the cause point. this, cause the sentiment is, is fine. But I, I have no problem saying happy holidays in an effort to not exclude a person who doesn't celebrate. I don't have a problem with that either. I think the silly part is where, I mean, but I'm also, I'm not, I mean, I'm not trying to virtue signal. I'm not trying to do it as a way of like, you know, may, like I said before, maybe I did at one point, but I just don't like, sure. I don't think of it that way. Like I do not, I'm not trying to show people how virtuous I am. I am. I don't care. Like I don't, I, you know, I'm not going to get bent out of shape if somebody says happy holidays and I don't need a, and I don't need a Starbucks cup to tell me Merry Christmas. <laughs> you know, I mean, well, it's just like, Anyway, on that note, I'll talk to you later, man. You got it, brother. All right, bud. See ya. Hey, Unbalanced listeners. Thanks for listening. Uh, It's Brian here. I just want to say 
thanks for your patience. We've had uh, a few problems getting things out consistently. I'm in the process <clears throat> of working on some stuff uh, to try and fix that in 2023. I'm trying to get a couple of episodes written ahead so that we have a more consistent schedule. So stick with us and stay tuned. Uh, hopefully, Coming soon, I'll have, uh, we'll get into a regular schedule. It's pretty difficult with just one person uh, doing all the work. Uh, I know Mike thinks he's the talent, but one of us does all the work here. So uh, anyway, stay tuned. I appreciate you. We appreciate you. Uh, you can t uh, tweet at us occasionally at, at Views Unbalanced. I'm not on Twitter much these days. Uh, or you can Gmail, um, unbalancedviews at gmail.com. I uh, hope to have a greater social media presence in 2023. And like I said, a more consistent schedule. We've got some great episodes coming up. And um, we might have a slight format change. I think I might. But anyway, well, news about that will be coming soon. All right. Thanks so much. I hope you all have a wonderful 2023. Thanks again.